Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from Paul's letter to the church at Rome, chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. I encourage you to turn in your scriptures and follow along as I read again from God's holy and inspired word. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. When one considers the individuals for whom the book of Romans has played a significant role in either their conversion or their sanctification, it is quite amazing that Paul's letter is not required reading every week in every church around the globe. John Chrysostom, the Archbishop of Constantinople in the late 4th century, was well known for his gift of preaching. He so valued the letter to the church in Rome that he had it read aloud to him twice a week. Interestingly, in that same period of church history, there was a young man in North Africa whose father was a pagan and whose mother was a devout Christian. And though she lived an exemplary life and though she made every effort to influence her son for Christ, he turned to another religion which valued sensual liberty, and he followed its tenets for a number of years, even as he furthered his studies in rhetoric. Imagine this poor mother attempting to reason with her wayward child who was studying the most effective means of argumentation. This young man engaged in a relationship with a concubine for a number of years. He had a son with her, but his spirit was restless. His pursuit of sexual pleasure brought him to a point of despair, and all his arguments failed to bring the peace that his soul longed for. All the while, his mother continued to pray fervently for him. One day, he was pacing in the garden, seeking some spiritual relief from his from this discord that he felt within his own heart, and as he sought some spiritual solace, praying to a God that he knew not, 
a childlike voice wafted over the wall singing a refrain from a game that was unfamiliar to him. Take up and read, take up and read, came the sing-song voice. Perceiving this to be some timely oracle, he took a copy of the scriptures and was motivated to turn, allowing his eyes to read whatever they happened to fall upon. And providentially, he turned to Romans chapter 13, where he read, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And the sovereign God of the universe used those verses to convict this young man to such a degree that he surrendered his life to Christ and pledged to follow him into eternity. That young man was Aurelius Augustinus, better known to us as St. Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo, one of the greatest theologians of the church, a man whose theology and philosophy greatly influenced all of Western civilization. It is no wonder then to learn that men like Martin Luther and John Calvin and John Wesley and Jonathan Edwards and so many others were all convicted by the Holy Spirit as they read the letter to the Romans. The inspiration of God's Spirit is profoundly prominent upon these pages for the gospel is so powerfully portrayed here. So many biblical themes are bound together in Romans so as to make it one of the most referenced books in all of Scripture. And as I have been contemplating the time that I have left with you, I have pondered long and hard about what I want to leave with you. And though we preached through Romans over a decade ago now, I have felt that there is no other book in the Bible that is more foundational for the next chapter of this congregation's life together than the truths that are articulated in these 16 chapters. Now, it is not my intention to expound on every single verse, a la Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh preacher who offered 30 sermons on the first chapter of Romans alone and 366 sermons over the course of 12 years on the entire book. And those sermons, might add, were about 50 minutes in length on average, so I don't want to hear any complaints. But it is my intention to give a fuller treatment of Romans than I did more than a decade ago. This is the proclamation of the good news entrusted to the church for every generation. And I hope and pray, as did the mother of Augustine, that through God's holy word there will be some whose lives are transformed by the Holy Spirit through this particular letter to the church that was in Rome. As we might imagine, even among those who treat This book favorably, there is no shortage of varying opinions about the congregation to which the letter is addressed, as well as the reason behind 
Paul's writing it. The most trusted voices I know date this letter in early A.D. 55, probably during Paul's three months spent in Greece just prior to his journey to Jerusalem to bring that offering of the churches to the saints there who were under persecution, specifically based upon the names that are mentioned in this letter and then cross-referenced by Luke in the book of Acts. We believe that Paul was in Corinth when he wrote this letter. The occasion for writing appears to be preparatory. That is, by this point in time, Paul has made several missionary journeys throughout Asia Minor and into Greece, establishing churches and leaders throughout those regions. But he's never been further west than Berea or perhaps Illyricum. And he has a desire to embark on a missionary journey to Spain. And in the same way that the church in Antioch of Syria became a a base of operations for his earlier missionary journeys, so he hopes to establish a new base of operations in Rome for journeys deeper into Europe. And since Paul has never been to Rome, and since Paul's reputation will have preceded him, given the number of detractors that plagued him throughout his ministry, this letter sets forth the essence of the gospel that he proclaimed, introducing the believers in Rome to him and to the core of his message by way of letter. And as Paul begins, he uses the customary introduction that's unfamiliar to us. We typically put the date and the address at the top of our letters with the greeting, Dear So-and-So. We use that even if the person we're writing to is our worst antagonist. And we close our letters then by identifying ourselves at the very end. In the ancient world, they began by identifying themselves first, then naming the recipient, followed by a greeting that might even include a brief prayer. And so one ancient letter that has survived the ages begins this way. Serenus to his beloved sister Isadora, many greetings before all else, I pray for your health. Well, Paul follows this custom, but with far greater detail and deep meaning embedded in his words. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, it was not atypical to, of Paul to characterize himself as a doulos or a slave. I know it's translated servant, but in many ways, slave is a better interpretation of the word, a slave of Christ Jesus. And we don't want to overlook this choice of word, for it speaks of one who has found the freedom and joy that comes from being forever indebted to Christ. In the Old Testament, when an Israelite ran into economic difficulties severe, they would occasionally find themselves indebted to the degree that they could not pay back the debt they owed. And in that case, they became a bond slave to the one in whom they, to whom they were indebted. But that was not intended to become a permanent thing. 
After seven years, their debt, whatever was left, was wiped clean, and they were set free to be their own master once again. Some of those individuals, however, knew themselves well enough to realize that it would not be long before they fell into severe debt once again. And if they were currently serving a kind master who provided them with what they needed in exchange for service, they could make things permanent by declaring that they did not want to be free, in which case they would go to the priest who would hear their request and would pierce the lobe of their ear, indicating their status as a bond slave to their master. Well, Paul is identifying himself as such a bond slave of Christ Jesus. And in doing so, he is declaring that he no longer desires to be his own master, but he desires to serve the most kind-hearted master he's ever known, that he owes a debt to him that can never be repaid, for he was bought with a price that is beyond all compare. In this relationship, it was not Paul who was pierced, to show that he belonged to Christ, but rather Christ was pierced on Paul's account. Francis Havergale wrote a hymn whose first verse encapsulates this sentiment. I love, I love my master, I will not go out free, for he is my redeemer. He paid the price for me. I would not leave his service. It is so sweet and blessed. And in the weariest moments, he gives me the truest rest. And so Paul is making a declaration of how he sees his own relationship with Christ. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. Now notice that he self-identifies as being a slave before identifying himself as an apostle. But notice also that he says that he was called to be an apostle. This is most important in terms of distinction. It needs to be acknowledged here. For there are many who occupy pulpits that have never been summoned by God to do so. Donald Gray Barnhouse relates the story of an elderly, not-so-educated preacher who understood the significance of being called to preach, who had just listened to a young minister preach who was extremely cocky and particularly full of himself, and it came through in his preaching. And when he was finished preaching, the elderly pastor approached him and he asked him, Were you sent, or did you just went? And you see, there's a difference. Paul was called to be an apostle. He was called to the task of proclaiming the gospel. When he was blinded from his encounter with the risen Christ, the Lord sent a disciple named Ananias to go to Paul and lay healing hands upon him. And Ananias was hesitant because of Paul's violent reputation. But God said, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Paul was called to be an apostle. 
The word for apostle is a word that means sent one. And so Paul is declaring that God called him for the express purpose of being sent out into the world, bearing the good news of Christ Jesus. Now in one sense, as disciples, every one of us is sent out into the world with the gospel to bear witness to Christ in all that we do and say. But in the scriptures, the word apostle was reserved for a small cadre of authorized voices who were specifically called by Christ and were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. One of the things that plagued Paul at various points of his ministry had to do with his credentials. There were those who called into question Paul's legitimacy as an apostle because of his early persecution of the church. They could not seem to forget the role that he played in that period of early church history. There were others who wanted to cast doubts upon his spiritual authority because Paul was a a vigilant opponent of anyone who strayed from a gospel of pure grace into a false gospel that included an element of law with it, leaving the impression that keeping the law was essential in securing one's salvation. There were still others who were, frankly, jealous of Paul, and so it was not uncommon for them to cast aspersions upon Paul, particularly when he ran afoul of the civil authorities and found himself locked up in prison once again. And they would simply point at him standing behind those bars and shake their heads wondering how anyone would want this man to be their pastor. But Paul never apologized for the trouble he encountered for he understood himself to be called into this ministry by the Lord Jesus himself. And this was the key ingredient to any legitimate claim to being an apostle. The apostle had to have had an encounter with the risen Christ, and the Lord of Lords had to have called that person to this ministry. Now, Paul would be the first one to acknowledge that his encounter with Christ was unlike that of Peter or James or John, but his experience was no less legitimate. He recognized that it was untimely and that it came later than the others, but he also understood it to be by God's providence that it happened the way that it did. At one point he says, I am what I am. God took the chief of sinners and transformed him into an apostle, a slave of Christ, and as he puts it here, set him apart for the gospel of God. Here is another identifying understanding that is helpful for all of us, particularly as we consider the Great Commission. The story is told of a wealthy man in the Midwest a a generation or more ago now who was an outstanding Christian layman. People used to ask him uh, what he did, and he would always reply, I am a witness for Jesus Christ but I pack pork to pay expenses. (laughs) Like the Apostle Paul, he understood himself to be set apart for the gospel of God. This was his primary calling, but he also had a job that covered his expenses while engaged as a disciple of Christ. He was a meat packer. Many disciples don't think this way, and yet we should. 
Paul certainly understood that he had been set apart for the gospel, even as he engaged in making tents to cover expenses. And so it is for every disciple. Our first calling is to bear witness, even as we engage in other tasks to cover our expenses. The gospel of God had long before been revealed through the prophets, Paul says. And as those who were confronted by the risen Christ soon discovered the life and death and resurrection of the incarnate Son of God was contained in the Scriptures, but their spiritual blindness prevented them from recognizing it until the Holy Spirit opened their eyes to perceive it. The passage we read earlier in the service has the risen Christ engaged with Cleopas and his companion on the road to Emmaus, and we are told that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. If ever there was an open secret concerning the Messiah and what he would suffer for our salvation, it was this one. The problem was that we were too blind to recognize how God was going to implement his plan of salvation. Well, Paul makes clear that this gospel of God is centered entirely upon God's Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So right out of the gate... Paul makes clear that the gospel that he proclaims is centered on Christ Jesus, who is both human, descended from David according to the flesh, and divine, declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Paul understood that there was no other way for God's plan for our salvation to be accomplished. No mere man could substitute himself on behalf of all the sons and daughters of Adam, for he himself would be guilty of sin from the moment of his conception. God could not substitute himself on our behalf, for God is spirit and incapable of paying the price which was the shedding of blood, innocent blood. Nor could God ignore our sinfulness, for to do so would violate his holy righteousness. The only suitable mediator between God and man would have to be fully human and fully divine and fully willing to stand in our place and be fully acceptable to God the Father. And there was only one who fit those parameters, the eternal incarnate Son of God whom Paul refers to at this point as Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, throughout this letter, Paul will make the case that Jesus, whose name means God saves, is the anointed one, the Christ, promised by God through the prophets, and that by virtue of his atoning work, he is to be worshipped as Lord. That is, all the honor and glory and praise and power that is due to God the Father is also due to Jesus, for he himself declared, I and the Father are one. Now, when we consider that this letter is addressed to those in Rome who are loved by God, their ears were particularly sensitive to the use of the word kurios, Lord. For they were located at the seat of the Roman Empire, 
where Caesar was considered by their neighbors to be Lord. But Paul does not shy away from language that is eternally true. For Caesar certainly is not the one to dispense grace and apostleship. Caesar did not atone for the sins of the world. Caesar did not create the heavens and the earth. Caesar did not restore sight to the blind or mobility to the lame or hearing to the deaf. Caesar did not feed thousands with a few fish and loaves. No Caesar ever rose from the grave. So Paul has no hesitancy about referring to Jesus as Lord, nor should any disciple, for Christ alone is worthy to be worshipped. And it is through this one who is worthy of our worship that we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of this name among all the nations. We need to note once again that Paul clearly orders his words such that the reception of grace precedes anything else. Before we are sent, we must receive the grace that Christ extends. For if we do not, then we are nothing more than false prophets. I referred a moment ago to Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, whose ministry at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia spanned 33 years until his death in 1960. Dr. Barnhouse had a deep sense of being called to ministry from the earliest days of his life. At the age of five, he remembered responding to a man's question of what he wanted to be when he grew up by saying that he was going to be a preacher. And that sense of call never left. When the world was in the midst of the First World War, he enlisted in the Army in 1917, even though he was studying at Princeton. But he joined the Army as part of the uh, aviation section of the Signal Corps, and his presbytery approached him about early ordination so that, as one of them said to him, he might be able to minister if the need arose. Well, as he tells it, I would have ministered with or without their ceremony of ordination. But at his ordination, he tells of them posing their questions and then asking him to kneel as they laid their hands upon his head, gathering around to offer prayer. And then he says, one man was asked to make the prayer. I felt his hand come on my head. And then the hands of others touching my head and pressing down on his hand and the other hands. And the ring of men closed in, and one man began to pray, this one man. And it was a nice little prayer, he said, and had one pat little phrase in it. Father, guard him with thy love, guide him with thine eye, gird him with thy power. And he said, I kept thinking about those three verbs, guard, guide, gird. And it seemed as foolish as performing a marriage ceremony upon two people who have been living together for a quarter of a century and who've had a family of children together. Because I knew that I had been ordained long since and that the hands that had been upon my head were hands that had been pierced and nailed to a cross. And then he says years later, the man that made that prayer that day 
signed a paper saying that he was opposed to the doctrine of the virgin birth, the doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ, the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement, the doctrine of the miracles of Christ, and the doctrine of the inspiration of the scriptures as tests for ordination or a man's good standing in the ministry. And he said, when I read his name on the list, I put my hand on top of my head and I smiled to myself, wondering how many dozen times I'd had my hair cut since his unholy hands had touched me. And I had the profound consolation of knowing that the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ, wounded and torn because of my sins, had touched me and given me an apostleship which was from God and which was more important than any that man could approve by their little ceremonies. And this is why Paul declares here that it is through Christ that we all have received grace and apostleship. He is the one who calls and sends disciples to proclaim the good news of his atoning work. Surely he calls some to a specialized work as pastors and missionaries and evangelists and seminary professors. But they are not the only ones whose task it is to bear witness to Jesus. Every disciple is called and sent to tell others the good news that Christ has paid the penalty for their sin and been raised from the dead for their justification. In fact, we believe that this is how the church in Rome began, and we will explore that more next week. I realize that some may be thinking that I am already breaking my promise about not preaching for 50 minutes like Martin Lloyd-Jones, but this is important that we recognize that every disciple that has received the grace of Christ has also been sent to bear witness to what Christ has done through his life and death and resurrection and ascension. And if you have received that grace that has cleansed you and made you new and cured your spiritual restlessness, then I challenge you to seek opportunities to bear witness. And if you have not yet received that grace, then know that Christ freely offers it to all who will come to him with sincere, penitent hearts, seeking his cleansing, forgiveness, and transforming power. And if you hear his invitation to come to him today, then do not delay. And as we pray together now, surrender yourself to this loving Master who was pierced for you. Would you bow together with me in prayer?